Hi, I'm Bill Caper, and this is the Leverage Loop Learning Discussions Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be focused on what I'm calling the engineering paradox, really the, the tension between building for, for features and building for the now uh, and market fit versus building for scale, longevity, or the long term. I've asserted previously that my top three tenets for building software are keep it simple, stupid, followed by uh, YAGMI, which is you, you aren't going to need it, so don't build it. Uh, and then don't repeat yourself or dry. And, and if I had to sacrifice, I would sacrifice working from the bottom up in that order. But that it, the engineering paradox actually is a very interesting challenge or dilemma because when you're focused on building for market fit, you can potentially build at the exclusion of scale and put yourself into a situation where you find market fit and the pressure for keeping that competitive advantage of that market, of that early market fit, means you then have to build more features and you can't actually ever get to scale. The alternative is you build for scale before you have market fit and you violate, in essence, YAGNI, which is building before you need it. So how do you find the right balance? It is, is that paradox real? Or is the paradox a, a trap you can fall into uh, that you have to avoid? So with me today, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to, to be here with Tim Lamaster. Uh, Tim is a principal engineer at Pangea Money Transfer. Uh, he's been there for about a year and a half now. I've worked with Tim at a few different uh, companies, uh, both a uh, early stage startup, Huckleberry Insurance, where we did some re-architecture and really helped put that company on a, a really strong cur uh, growth curve. Uh, and then even prior to that at Root Insurance, which was a later stage startup that actually went through IPO while we were both there. So Tim, thank you for taking time to do this. And thank you for being here on the Leverage Loop podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Bill. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. And Tim, do me a favor. We haven't really talked much about this, but uh, as a principal engineer at Pangea, what do you focus on uh, primarily in your, in your role? And where is Pangea at in terms of its own journey as, you know, as it matures as a startup? Um, where are they at on both the business curve of that? You know, are they still early stage or later stage? And on the engineering scale, where are they at in terms of, you know, that the sort of rigor you see at a, a later stage company that's really found scale and found fit versus the earlier stage where things are a little messy and still a little, uh, little, little fluid. Sure, absolutely. Uh, at Pangeo, I focus on a, a couple of things. As principal engineer, one of my primary responsibilities is to unblock the engineering teams, right? We have um, three squads that kind of focus on different parts of the business. Um, each of those has a lead engineer, and I help those lead engineers design their features, um, vet their technical designs, uh, help them with the more complex parts of it. Uh, and just assure we're building the right thing for the business. Um, I also dig into our scaling issues in AWS uh, and make sure that we're keeping up with our load, uh, especially you know big time of day come or big time of year coming up for us is Mother's Day. Um, and so we kind of investigate uh, even more due diligence on what's happening there because we see up to like three times the number of customers on uh, Mexico Mother's Day, which I think is next Tuesday. Um, mm -hmm. And then I focus on our infrastructure's code to help us build that out quicker um, and be able to to reproduce changes from our dev environment to our production environment uh, qu quicker than we have in the past. Um, as far as where is Pangea on the scale of things, Pangea has been around for a little while. 
Uh, but I would say they're they're more of in that still kind of a uh, early stage startup like frame of mind. Uh, they've grown slowly over the course of years. Recently, were acquired by a much much larger company called Innova, um, and Innova is really looking for them to you know 10x their growth over the next few years. Um, so it makes sense to be part of the Innova you know portfolio of companies. Uh, so in that mind, we're really still seeking product market fit. I don't think our, um, you know, customer acquisition cost, uh, nor our kind of um, long-term retention is where it needs to be. So we, we still need to work on product market fit, uh, but we do have, you know, a reasonable amount of scale. That's pretty interesting. Um, well, I think any startup would say, they're always seeking better customer acquisition costs and better market fit. Uh, so I don't think they're, they're alone or you guys are alone there. Um, I, I am curious as I've never used the product. Is it a, is it a, a native first mobile first experience? Is it a more of a, of a hybrid, both rendered and desktop? Tell me a little more about the architecture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is mobile first. Uh, most of our transfers come through the mobile apps. We have iOS and Android apps. Uh, we do have a web um, site. And most users experience their first transfer that way and then quickly download the apps. Uh, more convenient on your phone if they stick around. Um, so the apps are native, you know, Swift and Objective-C, Java and Kotlin on the Android uh, front and then we have a backend written primarily in .NET, so we expose an API for you know the web and the mobile apps to call. Um, and yeah, we you know submit transactions to our API. We do a lot of background work because we need to reach out to you know the charge cards and and we have uh, partners who we actually use to send money to other countries. Uh, that all happens in the background uh, with um, uh, an asynchronous worker. Very cool. Um, and I know, you know, from our previous experience working together, um, you know, the thing that I really respect about you as an engineer and an engineering leader is your pragmatism, the ability to take problems uh, and really balance, you know, the, the, the need for business value, the need for uh, impact, we'll call it uh, with the customer, but also sustainability, durability in the solutions you're building. Um, and so like my first question, which really ties back to the topic that we're talking about, the engineering paradox, is when you think about that paradox, how do you approach it? How do you approach finding market fit for either greenfield work you're doing or maybe even re-architecting in a brownfield uh, versus that, that durability? And is it a paradox or is it a paradox that you could simply fall into or create on your own? Yeah, I definitely think it's a paradox of your own making if you're not careful. Um, in the greenfield approach, in the early stage startup, uh, like we said earlier, you're seeking you know product market fit. That, by definition, requires trying and testing a lot of things, right? You um, do a lot of A-B testing. You may put out a painted door. You may quickly change up how a feature works. If you're successful at that, that's kind of a good indication that your architecture is flexible, right? You're able to quickly adapt to the needs of the business and ship features out quickly. Um, you probably have a strong underlying architecture that's, that's you know, well encapsulated. Uh, things you're not repeating yourself, things are in one place. There's probably good tests. Um, 
it's possible you're not there, right? Engineers could just be hacking things up, making them work, that kind of things. But that's typically revealed by your failure rate, right? You'll have to, you'll push something out. You'll have to roll it back frequently where things are just riddled with bugs. You have strange interactions between new features because there weren't enough tests or there wasn't enough testing. Um, and the good news is, I think, is this flexible architecture that allows you to experiment in the early days will allow you to scale in the later days, right? You'll, your components will be well encapsulated, your database access, your file access, your APIs. Um, you'll be able to pull those apart, scale that database up as you need to, change the database technology without too much disruption, um, replace an API that's not working uh, well for you if it's well encapsulated. Um, so I don't think it's a paradox, but I think if you're not careful, it, it can seem like a paradox. And how about in the brownfield example where, you know, there's pressure to, you know, you have a solution, there's, you know, there's some things that are potentially limiting in that solution. Uh, you've made the, someone's made the decision to actually go and make an investment and in trying to re-architect or clean up the existing code, yet there's pressure to deliver uh, and get value out the door. And I, I'm using re-architecture, it could simply be a refactor. It doesn't have to be redoing the entire stack. Um but in that scenario, right, that 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 sort of that tension, if you will, between the let's let's solve a problem internally, but let's also still get external value. Um, is there a paradox there of doing one or the other and trading off, or is it just a is it again in your opinion is just a balance? Yep. Yeah. No, that's a good question, Bill. So um, I think it can be uh, a kind of give and take and balance, and, and and you can kind of break trust there if you're not careful, right? I think engineers sometimes want to make changes for, you know, the sake of chasing the perfect. Um, and if you're chasing a re-architecture or a redesign or whatever, um, if you can't express it in terms of, you know, what's what's the business going to get out of this, right? Is it going to improve velocity later? Is it going to reduce um, defects? Is it going to uh, make it safer to ship, right? What's the business value behind this? Uh as, as you know, I love developing software, I love engineering software, but in the end, it's to serve our customers. And if we're making changes um, because we think it's cool, we want to learn uh, a new database technology or we want to introduce, you know, uh, some pattern because we saw it on, you know, some podcast the other day, but we can't identify the business value behind it. That's where we break trust with our business partners. Um, and you get into that, you know, fight between product and engineering. Uh, but if you can you know, take time uh, and express, you know, what you think the problems are and why you think it's a problem for a business. I spend a lot of my time doing this, right? I want to make changes to the way we deploy software or the way we test software or the way we build software. Um, you have to back up and explain, you know, what's the value of this? Where do I, where's my payback uh, to the business on this? Um, and build that trust over time. Uh, such that you can, you know, make those investments. Why is it so hard to get right? Um, you know, if I think back, uh, some shared examples that we have, and also some that I have in my own history, um, I've seen examples where, you know, there's it's been the business running at endless feature after endless feature without making the investment in actually um, in scalability. Uh, longevity, extensibility, productivity for engineers, right? And it creates a, a mountain of technical debt that just can't be overcome uh, 
and thus you're chasing the value because you're going so slow at delivering value in the first place. I've also seen the very opposite. I've seen engineering teams that uh, get so wrapped up and enamored on, I call it the Russian nesting doll of value, where they convince themselves that building this new thing is great. And then only at the end, do they realize that really that doesn't get you any value. You have to then build the next thing, which is going to get you value, get to the end of that only to realize that, no, no, that's just a precursor to building the next thing, which will get you the value, et cetera. And you never actually get any value. And it's an endless re-architecture cycle that never actually sees light of day or ever sees value from the business standpoint. And so, you know, you've been very successful when I'd say pragmatic at finding the right balance, both at, you know, root when I think about some of the things we worked on there, both in terms of architecture and you led the, you know, the, the team that was really focused on engineering productivity and making architectural improvements to that end. I also think about the work uh, that we did together at Huckleberry and, you know, in that scenario, we, we re-architected the platform from the ground up and, you know, I, the team was a, was a really good team when we joined. Um, and so I, I don't want to make this sound negative, but it's been a year prior struggling to deliver value, partly because the, the COVID, partly because the business was in some turmoil, um, people were coming and going, partly because they were they kept having to re sort of start and rethink about the approach they were taking. And you know, we went in there and we were able to build a a new architecture that unlocked a ton of productivity. Went from I think a, a PR every two weeks per engineer to a PR per at least one PR per day per engineer. Um, you know, that sort of pragmatic value. And we saw self-binds at Huckleberry where, you know, it was less than 1%. And that old architecture was 40%, uh, I think, by the time that you and I had left the organization, uh, if not maybe 50% by then. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, how do you avoid that 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 pitfall? Like in some practical terms, how have you avoided it? So you haven't fell into either one of those camps of, the endless refactor or the endless chasing tail of feature after feature. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, I'll answer that in, in two parts. Um, taking, going back to when I moved to lead the productivity team at, at root, uh, I was um, the engineering manager on telematics uh, and I was approached by Bob and yourself to come over and lead this. I think it was at the time called application architecture uh, or application infrastructure, I think. And it didn't make, the name didn't make much sense to me. Um, and no surprise, the team didn't make much sense to me, right? We had some of the most talented engineers at root working on that team, uh, Kyle Thompson uh, and others, um, but they weren't really hitting above their weight, right? They weren't even really hitting at their weight. Uh, and it was that kind of endless refactoring nesting doll problem that, that, that you mentioned. And I think there's two things going on there that we that we quickly saw and we quickly put um, you know steps into address. Uh, there wasn't a long term roadmap vision of like what should this team do, how should this team provide value. They they found problems they thought were problems and worked on them because they were interesting, right? Uh, and they made great stuff, but it didn't have the impact because it wasn't traced back to. What's the value this is going to provide? So um, before I did anything with the team, we started developing a roadmap of how how was this team going to operate? What difference was this team going to make? Um, and then they had some projects running and I let them kind of burn those down. I said, OK, now here's what we're working on. Right. Here's where how we're going to provide value. And we we took off a few projects uh, and delivered those rapidly 
made some great improvements to our build system, um, you know, really shrunk our Docker images down, um, really made some some super impactful ways to how the software is built uh, and then eventually tackled, you know, the architecture of the system that was causing us so much time spent on um, running tests and flaky tests and engineers having to have like way too much in their head uh, to to do any one change. Um, so we kind of got out of that mindset. And, and the other thing that was going on there is the board at the time was literally like, a, a row for every engineer. No one was working together. It was like, I'm chasing this problem. He's chasing that problem. Uh, and everybody's just kind of like chasing the problem that they're interested in. Uh, and I firmly believe that, you know, two heads is better than one. Many heads is better than two. Uh, and so of any project of any size, my rule was like, at least two engineers are going to look at this, right? Divide and conquer where it makes sense. Pair where it's difficult. Uh, and we really need to be careful and uh, deliver value that way. I don't believe in, you know, forcing people to pair all the time. I don't, but I also don't believe in everybody just goes off and does their own things and never talk to each other. I think the the optimal path is is somewhere in between and you encourage engineers to pair, you offer the opportunities for it, um, but you don't force it. So I think that's, that's an example on that kind of, you know, nesting doll problem um that we had and how we dug our way out of that was going back to that business value um moving on to huckleberry uh that was pretty interesting right i think what had gone on there was um a lack of communication between product and engineering uh and often or not uh this is this is on the fault of engineering of not communicating when we're doing suboptimal things, right? When we're taking shortcuts, uh, when we don't have enough testing, when we don't have a good build system, when things aren't repeatable, if we're not communicating that back to our business partner as we're doing it, they don't understand, right? Things are going really fast in the beginning because there is no debt, right? There is no, no problems. But we make these small decisions along the way that add up to all this debt but yet we haven't been communicating that to to them, right? So, you know, get this feature out, get this feature out. The I think the reason that becomes, you know, a, a battle and, and a tug of war is because as those decisions were made early on, no one was communicating how that debt was accumulating. Uh, they may not even realize that depending on their level of experience of like, yeah, this stuff we're building is going to be hard to maintain and hard to build on in the future. So, Huckleberry was interesting because I don't normally, you know, endorse this as a, as a way, but we kind of started over, right? We we look at we looked at the existing code base and we said there's not a clear way out of this and there's not enough code here that it's that challenging to reproduce, but we need to reproduce it in a well-architected manner where things are well separated. You know, I think if you remember the code, the JavaScript code we replaced was just, you know, there was no way to identify what a class did. It just did whatever the engineer put in it. Not, nothing had a had a had a meaning or a reason behind it. Uh, whereas the architecture we put in place um, to replace it with Ruby on Rails, uh, you know, me being who I am was was very segmented and very encapsulated. Where uh, everything had one purpose, right? Transform this to that. Save this in the database. Send this message, right? Um, 
And that makes it very easy to to fix and change and adapt. You know, if you need to introduce something uh, new into that flow, it becomes, you know, write your new thing and plug it into the flow. Right. And and it really was that simple. Um, and also, you know, we wrote a lot of tests, a lot of good tests, not only unit tests, but integration tests that that stressed the entire thing and made sure that the entire, um, you know, endpoint worked or, or the end to end thing worked so that when we made changes, we were confident that A, we didn't break anything that was existing and B, we wrote new tests, our new thing works. And the the word that comes to mind in in both those examples for me is an intentionality, right? If you if you you know in both of the, I don't want it to sound like we're being critical of either Root or Huckleberry, and I can name three other companies and three other concrete tangible examples, but it both are actually true. It both 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 examples we we just sort of talked through. Uh, at Root, you know, like you said, there was the best engineers at Root, ones that I still view as some of the best engineers I've worked with in my career, and that was a career that spent seven years at Amazon, um, had focused on trying to re-architect, but, but the intentionality behind it was, wouldn't it be great if we could have this robust billing system, right? But robust doesn't actually describe what the billing system actually needs to achieve. What does it need to create in terms of engineering productivity, business productivity, the customer experience? It really just talks about this like very fuzzy, uh, very amorphous end state where it's you know uh, sunshine and rainbows, um, and you had the best engineers struggling to actually deliver value uh, to the point where even those billing changes sort of became orphaned, and we rescoped the whole team. And you did a heck of a job helping create create the very I'd say both intentional mindset of what is the outcomes we want to achieve, how we know we're achieving them. What do we want to then start with? How do we want to prove ourselves we're actually making progress to this goal uh, on both engineering productivity, system system design, security, system design, uh, uh, encapsulation around some of the key systems and not going service-oriented architecture uh, to the extreme or you know, microservice, but certainly the, it was a monolith creating this, you know, the true modular monolith and moving in that direction. Uh, and then Huckleberry, that intentionality, uh, I would say, and there was intentionality of, of purpose to your point like you know the the previous architecture was a 1.0 it, they were trying to find product market fit they had built with the first partner they had a lot of the a lot of the the concepts in the code uh aside from the the arc the sort of the the, the code cleanliness if you will uh was really keyed to some of these concept concepts that only translated to one carrier well then they started adding carriers and the concepts weren't translating but instead of sort of pausing and saying, okay, let's let's refactor this, let's start adding some of these things in, they just sort of kept piling on. Uh, and I think, I, the, if I remember right, at least the uh, I think the phrase at one point I, I used was like, it's like a, a poop sandwich, like you have one layer on top of the other, and you keep putting more on trying to solve the previous one, and you're better off just saying unwind the whole thing, start fresh, <laughs> and, and go again, uh, and, and avoid all the complexity that's now been created trying to deal with previous complexity and previous workarounds and such. Um, and that's not unique to any company, but in that case, intentionality was, was around, we need to, we now have market fit. We need to prove that we can support and, and have an architecture that can support a variable number of platforms that meet some basic criteria of how a policy needs to be bound. Uh, and we wanna create a platform that really empowers engineering productivity, both in, um, 
reducing cognitive complexity of learning how the system works. Cause it was, I mean, I love the pattern you'd put together there. It's still one I, I, I'm sure you look back on, it's like every engineer looks back and says, ah, I do it differently now. Um, but I love that sort of command, uh, sort of operator command uh, pattern structure, which has almost had a functional language-like component to it. Um, real tight encapsulation because it allowed for true end-to-end automated testing, both at component level and system, across the whole system without taking on all the craziness of having to build this, um, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, not con well context, if you will, having to build context or pull context from the database, you could build it modularly and test all at once in a really short amount of time, um, and that really served us well because it achieved, we proved and we were able to achieve both ends of that. We were able to achieve both the ability to deliver a uh, a self binding experience for the consumer uh, across numerous carriers and be able to surface those prices for those carriers and, and actually make the selections. But we also were able to go and create a crazy amount of engineering productivity to where we had a team of less than 10 engineers that were cranking out features, uh, which was toward the tail end when you were there, but cranking out features like crazy. Um, and I think that intentionality that you had set up there served us well there as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that architecture. I mean, looking back, obviously, there's there's things that were were odd about it, but uh, it was pretty good. Uh, I'm certainly not the the first one to use like a command chain of responsibility kind of pattern, which is which is basically what it was. Uh, but it, I, I do like the way um, it was designed and, and stitched together. I'm, I'm proud of that work. Uh, but I think one of the key key things between the previous architecture and the re-architecture is going back to, you were talking about your, your three principles and one of them was, was Yagni, you're not going to need it. Uh, I think they fell into a little bit of a trap there where, um, you know, you build one for one carrier thinking, well, I don't need multiple carriers, but you do, right? That was a, a key, um, you know, driver behind the business was to be able to, to price people on multiple um, insurance and see which, you know, which ones that their business is actually eligible for. And I think you smartly, uh, and I probably complained about it a little bit, was like, no, we need to build, you know, three of these at once, right? Two or three, I don't remember the, the number, uh, because the system needs to support, you know, in number of carriers in the back end. And I think if you if you say we're going to support, you know, more than one, but you only build one, it's probably not going to support more than one very well. Yeah, uh, we actually wanted to we wanted to launch with three. Um, uh, I think the team was a little ragged, and you included about getting those three out the door. And I I wanted to get it out and, and get it prove it as soon as possible. We started with two, if you remember, uh, but we did that very intentionally. We wanted to prove that okay, we they can only do one before we can do two with the third uh, in the hopper and then the fourth following shortly thereafter. Um, and that's what we did. We went live with two immediately uh, saw, you know, we ran into some issues of course, but if you remember that, that lot, that was probably one of the smoothest go lives of a re-architecture I've ever been a part of. And again, that, that includes seven and a half years at Amazon where we launched some pretty big systems and pretty big user bases. That one was, man, like four hours of a couple, you know, key little fixes at the very beginning and, you know, minor bugs from there for the next week that we fixed and then off to the races for the most part and banging out those other carriers. Yeah, that, that, that launch went, went great. Um, 
you know, that architecture was easy to test. And I think that's, that had a large, large part of why that was, that went so smooth. So let's pivot. I'm curious, have you ever been in a situation where the paradox is real? Like, you know, we, we talked about like how the paradox in some ways be self-created, but there, there does seem to be a few instances where that paradox outside of being self-created could have either already existed or you get caught into it from, you know, nothing, not because of anything of your own doing, the situation creates the paradox. Have you ever been in one? And if so, like, were you able to get yourself out of it? Um, I can think of times where I've joined an org where the paradox does seem to exist, right? Every Everybody's fighting, you know, between product engine engineering. I want to get this feature out. Oh, I need to do a re-architecture. Um, you know, things are are hard to do. Um, and I think that's, that's where it really comes in when tech debt has accumulated, right. To the point where small changes are hard. It's very hard to explain to the business like, oh, I know you want to change this, this, this thing that's really, really small and, and you think is really, really easy. And probably importantly, you know, a number of months ago or a number of years ago was really easy to do, but now the engineering team's telling you like, oh, that's, that's really hard. It's going to take a really long time. Um, and that's really easy to, to see how that would stress that trust. Well, you know, a year ago I could get this in, in a day and now you're telling me it's, you know, two weeks. Um, and that's hard. Uh, something I've, I've, I think I've done, you know, twice in my career, uh, a previous startup, uh, I came into doc halo, the iOS app I was working on at the time, uh, was the architecture was very fragile and extremely hard to make changes. Um, extremely hard to test, uh, had some weird scaling, uh, edge cases that, that, uh, one of the hardest bugs I've ever solved in my career, honestly, was, was that, uh, and I came in and, and started working on it. And I was very clear that like, hey, we need to start refactoring this if we want to go faster. Um, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I want to do. Uh, the difference was um, the way I approached it, uh, which I think made sense. You know, I think replacing the code at Huckleberry, I think makes sense. Replacing this application, I didn't think makes sense. But every engineer that had looked at that before me said, oh, we just need to rewrite this from, from the ground up, right? Um, it didn't need it didn't need a full rewrite, right? It, it was it had some deficiencies under the covers, but the, the screens, uh, the user flows, all that stuff was pretty good. We can you know, to to use a metaphor I've heard before, we can we can replace the engine of the car while we're down driving down the road if we're careful about it. Uh, and so that's what I set out doing. I said, you know, every time I touch something, uh, if it's more than a light touch, we're going to start refactoring this, and we're going to, um, you know, it has a lot of thread safety issues and other you know scaling and performance issues. We're going to start start making progress on that as we get features out, right? Um, and the business saw the value of that because one of the one of the metrics they were trash that was tracking was the uh, crash rate uh, through Crashlytics, and it was wasn't terrible, but uh, by no means was it good. I think it was somewhere around you know ninety six percent crash free users, which doesn't sound that bad, was but is actually pretty abysmal, right? Um, as we made changes, you know, I looked at those crashes and I looked where the most frequently 
uh, crashes were happening and refactored that part of the code first. And we quickly brought that up to like 99.6% crash free users. You know, most users are not, uh, not experienced a crash, you know, ever. Uh, and the ones that are, that do, you know, it's very, very infrequent. So you build up trust um, with the org, you know, taking uh, a more measured and I think to use your, your word in, in an intentional approach about those things. Uh, and I think the other, the other time is, is where I'm at now, right? Um, they've moved quickly for a lot of years. We still, you know, even to this day, we, you know, been there for about a year and a half, like you said, we've got a lot of tech debt and I'm trying to teach the uh, engineering leaders there, uh, the tech leads to communicate when they're doing things suboptimally, even if we still do it that way, right? Uh, you want to make a, a fee change in a particular country on a particular scenario that, that really isn't supported by the code paths that are there today, we can say, okay, let's let's make that happen as fast as possible because you know there's some critical issue with that company. But let's report that back to the business and say, hey, we're taking some shortcuts here. Um we really want to do it this way. If we want to get this out to market, you know, tomorrow we can do it like this. We would like to then come back later and refactor that, right? So that we don't leave this kind of you know ticking time bomb hidden in the code. Uh, so it's intentional. It's an intention about purpose, but it's also intention about communication, uh, which I think is 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 really critical. You made two great points that I just want to touch on uh, briefly. The the first is um, you talked uh, about the. The fact that engineers sometimes want to fall into the, hey, we got to rebuild this all. And uh, I think it's important. And I, I, I think this is really key. I mean, at Huckleberry, we made that decision. Like you said, the, the architecture it got to the point where it's like, where can I, where can I, what can I actually build on? And we realized that it, as we kept going, picking, poking, and you know, sort of drilling through, I won't call it rot, but it, it was one layer of inefficiency after another, after another, the, to the point where it's like, there's no foundation here to start with. We're better off rebuilding. Um, there's a lot of times engineers look at a hard problem like that and go, it's just easier if I rebuild it. But but ultimately, it's no different. And we both share a, a love and passion for home remodeling, home building. Um, you know, we both do that some of our own time. Um, you know, you don't you don't take a house, whether you, your house you're living in or if you're investing in property, get the property, immediately say, man, this isn't exactly the way I want it you know, let's just blow it up and then we'll rebuild it from scratch again, right? Like there are times you need to do that if truly the structure of the building is at a point where you can't find good wood to build from and you look and you're, in every every board you pull, everything is just termite infested or rotted or molded or, and you get to the point of, I'm not going to salvage here. I got to rebuild it all. But very rarely is that truly the, of the case. Like usually you get to a point where you say, okay, there is a, uh, there's a, something I'm going to build from, here's what I need to fix. And that fix may take time. It may take a, a periodic rebuild. Or if you're remodeling your home, you may have to start one room at a time and do it slowly, right? Engineering is no different, like making those investments. Cause that's what I've seen personally of, of the paradox has been when someone's been in a death cycle, the death cycle being that they're so far behind on trying to create business value that now that the business is behind, they're chasing dollars, they're chasing opportunity, and they can never actually make the investment to fix anything to begin with. So they keep trying to build and layer on top, which is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you almost have to start somewhere and say, okay, I, I may not be able to do a room at a time. I'm going to simply, on this thing that I'm building, I'm going to try to clean it up as best I can so that 
that that little piece of the world is now solved. I, I've, whether it's technical debt on testing, technical debt on architecture, that I can't fix everything at once. I'm going to start here and fix this and then work from there. Part of that's being intentional about how you want ultimately all to look like, but you're making a small investment that you're hoping will, much like paying off a credit card, you can eventually pay off one balance which snowballs in the next, et cetera. Um, to that end too, you, you you talked at the end, I hope I don't forget my, what my point here was, um, the, the, the communication around um, when, when you are being, being making a choice like that, the cost of the choice. And again, much like a home building exercise, right? I have a contractor coming into my house and they're making a decision, right? I, as the homeowner, right, will call myself the product manager or the project manager on that may say, hey, I, I want to, I have my windows leaking. I want you to fix it right now, right? A fix maybe put silicon around the window. That may be a great short-term fix. It's actually not the right long-term fix. The window may already have some rod on it. The, the contractor may say, look, the right answer here is to replace your windows. It's a $50,000, $100,000 investment. It's not to be taken lightly, but also these windows need to go. They're all approaching into life. I say, look, I'm going to make the decision for now, put the, the silicon around the window, try to get the leak to stop. I'll deal with this in three months, six months, nine months, a year from now, whatever. Um, but if that contractor doesn't tell me that, and I say, can you just put some silicon around? And the contractor goes, yeah, great. Silicon done. And it walks away. Well, I, as the homeowner, is going to be pissed when I eventually go to realize that the window six months from now, the silicon's failed again, and it's right back to where you started. And I think engineers need to also internalize that, that sometimes it's not about product leadership or executive leadership not wanting to make those investments. Sometimes they don't know the investment needs to be made or why that investment needs to be made and what the current situation on the ground is. And, and, and our job as both engineers and engineering leaders is to communicate that in a way that is digestible, much like the, the contractor is saying, look, let me explain to you about the windows and what's happening. I can do this short fix or this quick fix. Here's why this quick fix isn't going to be hold for long, but it'll get you through for now. Here's the right long-term fix and why, right? Any questions, then, you know, whether it's, again, a product leader or executive leader may come back with a, um, well, could we do X or could we do Y or have we, could we, could we stage it a certain way, right? That's not them trying to cheap out on making that investment. It's them trying to understand and appreciate the investment you are asking for so they can hopefully get to a yes on it. And it's just a matter of how to orchestrate it. And I think a lot of engineers, and I think Tim, it's super astute that you called this out. A lot of engineers forget part of their job is to educate technical or business leaders or product leaders on those trade-offs that are they're seeing in the moment. Even if there's a, is a trade-off to be made, educate them on the cost and the benefit of the trade-off. So when that joint decision eventually gets made, there's a full appreciation of all the sides that cost, not simply the engineer who can solve it and get it out the door in a day, right? But nobody knows what they're actually the creating is a pile for somebody else to clean up a week, a month, a year from now. Yeah, I think I think too often engineers look at a hard technical problem and they they you know they don't think they can explain it to to product or the business. They won't understand, right? Um, but you know, part is growing as a as an engineering leader is is learning to be able to describe those technical struggles and issues that we have in a way that non technical um, 
you know, stakeholders can understand, right? Tying it back to the value uh, is is where I always try to go, right? We If we do this, um, you know, it will be faster to develop this on this feature later. If we do this, this feature will be more stable, you know, uh, less users will have issues with it, right? What is the value of the thing that we're doing? Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, doing the silicone and cheaping out and, and it may not be, you know, product or the business cheaping out on on doing it the quick and dirty way. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the business needs to make it clear what the priorities are and what is and is not important. Right. As, as that we know today. So engineers understand why those trade-offs are being made. Right. Uh, an engineer wants to, you know, to extend the metaphor, do do some silicone on this or replace the entire window and, and really wants to replace the entire window. Right. And the business is like, well, you want to replace an entire window of this thing that's not critical to my business when I need to get out these, you know, five other things that are, you know, going to save us this year. Right. I'm going to ask you to do the silicone. But if you don't understand why that choice is being made, it's very easy to interpret it as that as, oh, they never want to do the right thing. They always just want to do the cheap and dirty thing, right? Uh, it's usually not the case. Yep. No, that's a great point. Like in leaders, whether it's on the product side or even in the executive level, leaders have the responsibility of communicating those objectives, those challenges, right? There's a lot of leaders that, that struggle with trying to be transparent about, hey, look, the business the economic current economic environment is challenging and right we here's the things we're up against here's some of the targets we're running at and why we're running at them right everyone may be i don't say frustrated but everyone may be disappointed or wish you could do more right but ultimately if if everyone's mission aligned to what you're working on the team will understand that and again then the you know the the, the hopeful the, the the situation hopefully is that the leader will also understand what those traps are and like Hey, look, I'm making a short-term decision. I'm living on the credit card, so to speak, because I'm hoping I can get to a point where I can start paying that back. Um, and so you're right. It's it's actually both sides that have to be communicative and be explaining because ultimately, right, it, it does create a deficit of knowledge on both sides if engineering isn't explaining those trade-offs and the cost of them uh, up to product leaders, software engineering leaders, you know, at a higher level, business leaders, and vice versa business leaders are creating a deficit or product leaders are creating a deficit with the engineering teams if they're not being communicative about the business challenges that are, or, or the business opportunities in front of them and what they're wrestling with and why they're prioritizing something over something else. Absolutely. Man, we covered a ton of ground quickly, Tim. Um, I do, there's some, a couple, I have a couple other questions I think I'd want to ask, but you know, I always like to to offer an opportunity for the guests on the show to ask me questions. Uh, is there any questions you'd be curious about me answer or me being able to answer for you? Yeah, I, I do have a question. We covered it a little bit, but um, because I think it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. Um, you know, when you took on the role of of CTO at Huckleberry and then and then brought me in, you had ultimately decided on a complete rearchitecture and replacement of, of the existing system. Um, I think my question's twofold, right? You know, A, how did you come to that decision? And then B, how did you convince, especially as a new leader uh, in an org, that the the rest of the leadership, that that decision was the right one? That's a great question. Um, so for, for me, when I got to Huckleberry and I had joined 
Uh, I accepted the role back in January of 2021. Um, you know, I was transitioning on my role at Root uh, through February uh, into, um, I think it was into early March, and then joined Huckleberry. I'd already been sort of on my own time digging in to the architecture, digging into the challenges and the roadmap the business had. Um, you know, and I, I saw that, you know, supporting more carriers was a thing sort of getting data on uh, the, the current platform and how it was operating, which was still in that super early, like found market fit, but a lot of person behind the curtain type activity going on with the, with the solution as a whole. And as I started digging into the code, you know, I, I loathe just somebody who comes in and says, we're re-architecting. Uh, and matter of fact, the last two times I've been a CTO, I've actually wanted going down that path. And especially the last time actually at lower, I tried to avoid it at all costs. Like I really didn't want to do it. And I got to the point where the team had put enough data in front of me where I realized that I've also made this mistake a couple of times where I've, I've, I've held off pulling the trigger on that and then regretted not pulling it sooner. And actually at, at my last experience lower, I, I regretted not pulling it sooner. I, I, I tried my best to make it work and just realized every time I thought we had gotten to sort of uh, solid ground in, in, you know, the, you know, going to build back up, found that it was actually quicksand. And uh, at Huckleberry, it was just really obvious that they had grown so fast on that previous architecture. And with a team that had, was really focused, hyper-focused on finding that market fit where they, they didn't have the right abstractions. And I could see in the code base that trying to even clean it up to get it to the point was, it felt like a lost cause. And the abstractions were across the board missing that it, it got to the point where I realized with the size of the actual code base and what it was doing, right? There's a lot of things that it thought it was doing, but when you actually got to the, the, the gist of it, it wasn't a whole lot that was actually happening under the covers. It just, it became super obvious to me that trying to simply make this work was actually going to take longer than just starting fresh, but doing it with a a very tight mindset, a very tight mindset to what do we want to accomplish? Like ultimately it was about being able to prove to ourselves. We had the right abstractions to support multiple carriers. We wanted to support a consumer coming into the flow as, as, as little amount of data and questions they had to either provide data provide or questions they had to answer, be able to qualify to see bindable quotes uh, and then even in cases where those quotes weren't bindable for whatever reason, all the information was there, ready to go for a sales representative to go go tackle that. And ultimately, in terms of the productivity, we wanted engineers to be able to build. But you know, I, I very much value simple solutions solving complicated problems. Uh, and to me, like the the that exist that that previous architecture with uh, it was like Node with a bunch of promises everywhere, which were just hard to follow, let alone understand. Like it, the, the cognitive complexity for, it was solving simple problems with what felt like very complex solutions. And, and the, the, the beauty of what you helped and really owned architecting was while there was rigor in it, it was pretty simple in some respects at the core. There were some, some little nuggets of complexity here or there, but the, there was cognitive simplicity in the sake, once you learned the pattern, you had it everywhere. It was super easy uh, to understand. And then it just became a matter, honestly, the challenge was the all the carriers and in commercial insurance for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with it, the APIs are all dirty. I'm sorry, they are. Like 
just nasty to work with. Uh, some of the, the, I mean, just the really, really uh, poorly documented, uh, inconsistent. Uh, yeah, I, I won't even go there. It, it was really, that was the challenge. That was, there was complexity and challenge in some of these problems. Some of it was just like how to build something that was durable, a durable sort of interface or facade against some of these third-party carrier APIs that weren't built for the prime time. But on our side, supporting it and giving an experience that was highly available, highly scalable, uh, low latency. And to me, like that's that was the the impetus for wanting to really re making that decision was, it was it was the exception of the house that it would have been it would have cost more money to try to fix it in place than bulldoze it and build it again and and we we actually proved that when I think we started in earnest in March of 2021 rebuilding late it was like mid March if I remember right and we went live uh, with the new architecture the second week of July I believe of uh, 2021 so four months give or take we went. Uh, and had a architecture that had 100% test coverage, that had two carriers fully supported, the third carrier and fourth carrier in flight being built on the scenes. And honestly, those carriers would have been done if not for the complexity around the carrier side, the APIs, the crudginess of it. Um, we would have had all four live probably by, by July. Did, yeah, was, there yeah, second, was... was there a second part of that question, by the way, that I did I miss a part of it? Uh, yeah, the second part of that question was, um, how did you convince the organizational leadership that was in place uh, that that was the right decision, especially being a new leader? Yeah, I, I, I thought there was a second piece. I couldn't remember what it was. So um, so at the time, I, I met with the CEO uh, and walked him through the, the, the why the current architecture was problematic. Um, some of it was self-evident. Now, he he was a, a a business leader who wasn't a technologist by trade, and so he could see the symptoms of the problems, but didn't understand why they were happening in the first place. You know, uh, data wasn't consistent. Uh, there were times where we thought the data was telling us one thing and it wasn't. Um, they couldn't. You know, they had this one carrier that was integrated, but even that care that integration was brittle. wasn't very durable. Um, the self-bind percentage was pretty low because of that, and they had to do a lot of manual work to get policies fully bound. Um, and so when I walked him through that and showed him both the current challenges, why, you know, and the, 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 the developer productivity metrics, et cetera. And I showed both he, eventually then we, we brought it to the board in my first board meeting and I presented the board with my, my plan. Uh, and for context, the board at that point had actually heard for the last year before I joined they were going to redo the architecture and it was going to be all these carriers and right. Well, none of that came to pass for all sorts of reasons. And so when I joined, I, I said, look, you may have heard this message. Here's what we're doing. Here's how I'm going to prove to you what we're doing. Here's what I'll show you what we're building. And when we're done, here's what it'll look like. And then uh, I, I think that was in the Q1 board meeting. When I came to the Q2 board meeting, we had, we had, all, we had just launched the, the new site Um we had data on self-binds and all this, and we were able to show engineering productivity and the self-bind data. And so when I came back to the board, I said, and I told you, here's how we, here's what we were doing. Here's the value we'd get from it. Here's how we'd measure it. I'm coming back and I just literally showed those exact same slides. And I said, here's the, the value we got. Here's how we're measuring it. Here's the impact it's having. Um, and in, in it, both selling it up front made it 
very tractable for our CEO to understand uh, as well as the board to understand. But then the, the, the sort of where you earn trust and you earn, uh, you, know, you you earn respect is when you then go and do it. And then you come back and say, here's how I told you how I'd measure it. And what I was, here my either my thesis or here, I knew what we could do. Here's how we were going to prove it. Coming back now and showing that data, being transparent with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tim, I, I, I'm going to just pause here. So Tim has a, uh, a blog that he writes, uh, and I want to make sure I pronounce it right. Is it dev dash Dev, dev no ops or dev nops? I call it dev nops. Dev, dev, so it's D E V, D as in dog, E as in Einstein, V as in Victor, hyphen, uh, N as in Nancy, O as in ostrich, P as in uh, pair, S as in Sam, dot net, uh, where you talk about engineering concepts. Um, one of the concepts you, you've talked about more recently is chat GPT. And I was actually going to make a joke earlier in our conversation when you talk about the sort of the trap engineers fall into. Uh, there's been a lot of engineers that, that have been looking at chat GPT as like either the it, it's the thing that's going to end the world or end our world as we know it uh, as engineers, or they've looked at it as, oh my God, like it's going to do everything for us and it's going to take all the dirty work away and we'll never have to do any of that anymore. So tell me about your view on chat GPT. Yeah, sure. I uh, I call my my Chat GPT post my obligatory Chat GPT post because uh, everybody's writing about it. I was really 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 late to the party, um, but you're right. I saw a lot of you know gloom and doom. This is going to replace you know everybody's jobs, right? You know nobody's going to have a job. Lawyers, doctors, computer software engineers, all these things are going to be replaced. Um, I'm old enough to remember. Uh, I think what they called like four GL languages oh, yeah. uh, that were that were of of a of a I don't know flare there for a while. You're just gonna drag things around on the screen. You're just gonna kind of define your table, and and there's gonna be no software, right? It's all gonna be drag and drop, plug and play. Uh, and I never really went anywhere, right? Um, <laughs> coding is hard, uh, and. My blog post kind of focuses on even if coding is hard, you know what's harder is reading code. Uh, there's a lot of data that's that that says you know reading code is is way way harder than writing it, and we spend about ten times more reading code than we do writing it. Right. So the question I raise is if ChatGPT is writing all this code, who's going to read it? Right. Who's going to make sure that it performs as it expected? Um, it's got to be a software engineer because who's going to understand the code, right? <laughs> well, not just that. I think the the article. I think you 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 sort of made it. You made a point that I hadn't yet heard made. I thought was really interesting and illuminating. Is if if engineers sometimes struggle to get code right, and Chat GPT struggles, you know, for everything it does well, or maybe spits out has the right answer. Plenty of things spits out have the wrong answer. What is Chat GPT going to learn from ultimately? And if errors are making their way in, won't those errors just compound over time when engineers learn from Chat GPT, potentially learn the, learn the incorrect stuff, don't understand it, and then they teach Chat Chat GPT how to then code better? Yeah, I don't I don't know what happens when Chat GPT starts consuming in its own code, but it doesn't seem like anything good could come of, of that. There's no additional learning to be made there, right? Uh, I think Stack Overflow and others are looking into how do they license their 
uh, content to these, um, you know, these these large language models companies because you know Stack Overflow and and all of us in the community have spent decades building up this knowledge base, um, and it seems weird that ChatGPT is going to come along, consume it all, uh, and then you know supposedly put us out of business. I, I don't see that part of it happening, but if it if it kills those kind of communities, you know, what is it going to train on next, right? So. There, there are some interesting things to to figure out uh, around ChatGPT. I, I think I end the blog post where um, I'm far more concerned about its impact on misinformation than any like kind of future job prospects. Yeah, well, I mean, if you play around with ChatGPT, uh, I was actually using it the other day. Uh, you know, I, I I'm constantly uh, I own my own business, obviously Leverage Loop, uh, where I engage both fractionally. Uh, for fractional engagements, as well as advisory and coaching uh, of executives, both technical and non-technical executives. Um, but I still, I'm still, I still love building. And so I, I'm working currently on a, a potential product idea. And I was using chat GPT just to, you know, sometimes you get that, I'm going to try to come up with a name for the new company if I'm going to start one. And uh, and so I, I told chat GPT, um, here's my criteria for the company. Here are the areas Feel free to choose synonyms for these words. Um, you know, don't end it with ex or ix because every consulting company under the sun has a name that's like ends with x or trex or you know something like that. Uh, and then I said I want it to be three syllables or less, uh, eight letters or less, and I want you to check to make sure the domains uh, for these names aren't registered uh, and don't resolve. And ChatGPT came back with a list of ten I thought great names. Uh, that said, I checked. Names aren't domains aren't registered. Coms aren't registered, and they don't resolve. I go grab the first one. Like this is a great name. I love it. Go check it. Check it in the you know the who is. And sure enough, it's registered. Hard registered. Not even like it was tough to find that it was registered or it didn't resolve. But registered. No, no. It, registered, it pulled the website right up, and clearly the domain was registered. So I, I asked ChatGPT and say like, why did you give me results? You know I. I, I told you to check it. Well, then it says, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's my mistake. You're, uh, I didn't do that. Let me do it again. Spits on their list. They start picking names there. I'm like, these names are not as interesting because now they're getting a little more cryptic, but that one looks interesting. Doesn't resolve. So now I asked ChatGPT, hey, I, why did you give me this specific name? It it shows this registered domain. ChatGPT comes back. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Let me do a deep search. Well, then it, it takes its time. Like I can see it's taking time to generate the thing. Comes back with 10 names that I think are all garbage. Uh, yet they actually didn't resolve. And so like you wonder how is the language, the model actually learning in the first place? But why is it not with very clear instruction? Why isn't doing it the first time? I'm sure there may be something they're actually experimenting and learning with, you know, an open AI side, but it just goes to show like, that it knew it was making a mistake, and yet it still did it anyway. And did, and and you know, it, which is no better than some professionals that bullshit and say, uh, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, I, I did that." And then you're like, "But I just checked your work. You didn't do it. I I just proved it." Oh yeah, you're right. My my bad. Let me do it again. Uh, so like, I'm not sure if we actually moved the ball forward at all in that regard. Um, the one thing I do think that Chat GPT, you know, I am not. I don't think it's going to be the Terminator anytime soon. Um, you know, and it's not going to be Skynet. But uh, the one thing I do think it could actually add value to, especially in the engineering paradigm, is ultimately when you're writing, you're trying to add test coverage to your code 
right? It could, I could see ChatGPT actually adding a lot of value, helping identify how to make your test coverage better or how to identify where your test coverage is lacking and suggest actual uh, test infrastructure, test, test fixtures to actually cover that. I think that would be a great use case for ChatGPT where it could be making those type of suggestions uh, writing code that's boilerplate, writing code that's pretty easy to, to templatize in some respects, but doing it you know, on behalf of the engineer so that you're not having to constantly go and find and grind on that stuff. Um, I just, you know, the I think your point's well taken, Tim. Like, I loved your article because of it. Like, you know, ultimately, like part of the, the whole ability to gain understanding and knowledge is about being able to learn and just understand build on top of, while I think AI is still, it's way, way ahead of where it was. And it's, I think, opening a whole new set of opportunities for productivity. I still think there's a, AI is really good at faking it. Uh, and this is true, even a language learning or the learning model side for translation and for language. Uh, you know, when you talked about statistical machine translation versus neural, it, you know, even when I was in the translation space back at Amazon, uh, in 2017, 2018, neural machine translation was fluent. It looked, you couldn't tell the difference between what a, uh, well, on the surface, you couldn't tell the difference between what a human translator did and machine translation when it came to neural machine translation. It was that smooth, where statistical was very, very robotic in some respect. You could, you know, make, you could be clear mistakes when you tried to build, build these words and build these phrases up from it um, because you had a, you know, sentence grammar alignment, all that stuff was harder. Neural, the sentences were fluent. The problem is you would occasionally get sentences that made no sense. Like they were fluent, like, like uh, you know, the king's robe was hot. Okay, well, has that, that's, not, that's not translated well because like, I don't, why would that make any sense? So our, you know, the king thought his robe tastes good. Okay, it's a, it's a fluid sentence. It just don't make any sense in context. And I, and, I, and I see in some respects, chat GBT doing things like that, where it can actually put information together in a very humanistic way that feels very fluent. But there does things at times where you're just like, that's like confidently wrong. Like you're, you're, you're projecting confidence in your answer and it sounds really great, but I can, I know it's actually factually wrong. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's why, um, I mean, I probably could have explained it better in an article. That's, that's why I ended the, the sentence with the, you know, I'm more concerned about the impact on misinformation, right? We have a lot of misinformation out on the internet, but chat GPT will confidently produce, you know, misinformation if asked, and it will do it in a really easy, fluid, you know, extremely human readable way. Um, and yeah, I'm concerned, you know, uh, about people using it to, you know, write articles or, or do anything where no one's, you know, if people aren't fact checking what comes out of it. Uh, same yeah. thing with, you know, checking the code that comes out of it, right? It'll confidently give you code that says like, yeah, this this does what what you you asked me to do. Um, but it turns out that it doesn't, right? 100%. Um, well, I could, we could keep talking all night. Uh, and this was super interesting. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today, uh, talking about, you know, the balance between, uh, well, I'll call it pragmatically approaching feature development, while being intentional about building long-term and avoiding that paradox that, you know, we led with here, the engineering paradox. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was an enlightening conversation and, and helped me understand my thoughts along it uh, a little better.
Cool. Well, we'll be coming back with more content uh, in the near future. Also, more than likely, the next couple of series will be on more engineering topics. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.